the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Friday, February 17th, 2023. We um, are delighted to have you with us. 602-508-0960. We're shifting it up a little bit today as we open the show. We uh, delightfully do so with our dear friend, Pete Peterson. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We'll have uh, some uh, other guests in my monologue a little bit later in the show. But uh, Pete, as was said of Abraham Lincoln and and, uh, Stephen Douglas, has been swinging up and down and back and forth across the country, (laughs) making the Welkin ring and uh, on the road. And we, uh, we are delighted to have him in this, our first hour. Pete, welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? I'm great, Seth. Great to be back with you, and and thanks for uh, the opportunity to continue our conversation. Always, always. Uh, thanks goes to you and uh, to your school. Speaking of, you recently had an anniversary celebration at Pepperdine School, huh? We sure did. Yeah, this was on Saturday night, and uh, under the wings of Air Force One at the Reagan uh, presidential Library, we welcomed a, a sellout crowd of about uh, 450 people or so to celebrate our silver anniversary for the policy school, our 25th anniversary. It was a great night. That's fantastic. That's a great, great event and a great, great venue. Um, I, 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 it must be breathtaking uh, to be able to celebrate under such a such a scene, such a proscenium, such a stage. Yeah, it is. You know, they uh, do such a good job of uh, making a space, which is really uh, a large part of the museum, uh, to convert it into space where, you know, you can put uh, tables down and a reception. Um, but at the same time, as you go there, uh, people can go still walk through uh, Air Force One uh, before the dinner starts. So it's really just a a remarkable venue uh, and obviously uh, a an, uh, an institution in the Reagan Library, which is just over the hill from campus, about 25 minutes away, and right. they've been such great partners for us on on a variety of events. I, the, one of the greatest lines in politics, or at least one of the funniest lines in politics, I had heard took place there in reference to that place uh, from perhaps an unlikely source. I believe it was either 2015 or 2016. It was the Republican primary. They held the debate at the Reagan Library. And That's right. Perhaps you were there. And um, and they they uh, 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 everyone gave opening remarks. And Lindsey Graham, who was running at the time, said it's it's a delight to be here because this is the first time I've been in a library since high school. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just never forget it. <laughs> but it is it is an amazing place. I love your libraries there in Southern California, the Reagan one. I'll tell you, I think in many respects the Nixon one is underrated. I yes. I, I, that is a fantastic I venue. Agree. Yeah, no, it really is. It's a, certainly a different space than the Reagan, but it yeah. feels much more personal. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's right there on the grounds where... Uh, Nixon was born, and so you really feel like you're connecting 
with the person. I mean, unlike Reagan, Nixon was a Californian yeah. born and raised. And right. so um, that library, which I know under the leadership of uh, Robert C. O'Brien, as it happened, yeah. who uh, was our speaker uh, at the 25th anniversary event, has really got uh, some great plans to grow. But even as it is today, it's it's really well worth a visit. It's interesting. You know, I'm just thinking now in real time with you about the difference between those two libraries. Part of it, the Nixon one, you're right, there is something more personal about it in a way. Um, and some of the Reagan biography, maybe it goes to the, the to the personages, the personalities of the two presidents. But part of it, too, is if you're going to the Reagan Library for the first time, you kind of have an idea of what you're going to get. You yes. kind of have an idea of what you're going to see. If you're going to that Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, right? Yorba Linda, I think. That's right. Yeah. No, if you're going right. to the Nixon Library for the first time, you're kind of not sure what you're going to get, right? I mean, yeah. Buckley describes no, no, Nixon right. as the Aztec calendar stone of the 20th century, meaning such an hard to— such an inscrutable figure, um, such a hard-to-understand figure. And there are many ways to write the history of Richard Nixon. It dawns on me that's kind of one of the maybe the the novice's first thoughts, maybe going to both libraries. I wonder if there's something no, to that. I, I do think that's right. Um, obviously, the home that he was born, grew up in, is on the ground there. So you really feel like you're connecting uh, with a man in Nixon. And at the same time, the way they... Yeah. They have the, the, the library and the displays. I remember when I went there, I mean, they have portfolios with copies of his letters in the Nixon Library I'm talking about, just open and available for people to grab. Uh, the Reagan Library is magisterial. I mean, it's just incredible. But it is a much more formal place than the, than the Nixon Library is. I want to get to some news and politics of the day with you, but first, any other uh, interesting travels you've been on? Any other interesting celebrations you've been involved in this week? I know you've been moving around. Well, Seth, I'm 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 coming to you live from uh, Lower Manhattan in New York, where I actually just got in today. And uh, the reason I'm here is we are partnering with a uh, Christian college university here in Lower Manhattan called the King's College for an all-day conference tomorrow on uh, the perils of uh, American foreign aid to Africa. So Interesting. we'll be exploring the issue of American aid and, frankly, some of the problems, albeit from extremely uh, high intentions. But um, we're, we're going to welcome uh, the NYU economist Bill Easterly there, who's written very effectively. I'll be interviewing him tomorrow. But just one of those things that you and I talk about so often, about the laws of unintended consequences. And when we look at U.S.-Africa continental relations, uh, especially when we look at aid and those kinds of things, um, you know, great intentions really have not delivered results and, in fact, may have made things even worse. Yes. And interestingly, there is – I just saw – a new book come out, and I can't place it right off the top of my head. I think it might have been released just this week or last, mm. with uh, written by by two liberal left professors, um, and it had to do with how much the shutdowns of the American economy affected the poverty negatively in Africa. 
Uh, wow. And Jay Bhattacharya, who I know you know, oh, yeah. was moderating yep. this discussion with them. Um, and anyway, it, it may or may not come up, but it is interesting that when it comes I'll to, to aid, that, yeah, so. I'll, I'll find it for you and send it to you. But when it comes Great. to aid for Africa, uh, yeah, it is. You know, it's interesting. There's these global attitude surveys, and one of the things I thought was very interesting uh, when I was looking at these things, there was no. There, is, there were no two countries where America was held highest for several years in the 2000s than in uh, Kenya. And I'm trying yeah. to remember the other one. I think it might have been Tanzania. I think it might have been mm. where the embassies were blown up, if I'm not mistaken, mm. because mm. they actually got to see the charity of Americans on the ground. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, what, uh, what we'll be exploring is American policy, uh, there will be a particular focus on Ethiopia, which is Good. another country that's Good. going through a particularly yeah. difficult time. Yeah. But uh, again, evaluating the importance of uh, especially public sector uh, aid and, and how that works. And of course, we're not the only player in Africa, which makes these questions so important. China has been taking a uh, an increasing yep. role there yep. uh, through its Belt and Road yep. Uh, program. And uh, so it was once the case where we kind of were the only player in Africa. Right. And if we wanted to give aid, we did. And if we didn't, we didn't. Yep. But now we really have to be much more circumspect about our dealings with these nations yep. because there is another player on the field, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to talk to you about China. I know it's on your mind a lot and on your students' minds a lot. Um, let me let me take the quick commercial break here, if I might, Pete. Uh, yeah, China is now on the ground in Africa in a very big way, uh, I guess, as they're now in the air in America in a very big way. <laughs> uh, they have been for some time at the uh, at the think tank and, and um, in the journalistic community. Uh, they have also, as you've pointed out, in the universities. Certainly that wouldn't be true of the King's College. Is it still, by the way, in this Empire State Building? I remember it used to no, be. No, it's moved all the way downtown. It's at uh, right near the bottom of Wall Street. Fantastic. Fantastic. I had yeah. a lot of friends that used to teach there. Our mutual friend Joe LaConte used to teach oh, there. Oh, yes. Very I'm much. Mistaken. Yeah. All right. Let me yeah. uh, take a quick commercial break, Pete, and we'll get to some of the news of the week as well. I am Seth Leibson. He's Pete Peterson. You can follow him. Very active Twitter account, at Pete Four CA. It's the number four at Pete Four CA. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. We are uh, delightfully joined by uh, Pete Peterson, who joins us uh, on uh, on Fridays uh, quite regularly. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. When we talk about higher education and all the problems in it. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy is the answer. They don't uh, suffer those problems because they don't suffer foolishness. And uh, much of that uh, thanks to the leadership of uh, Dean Peterson and the great faculty he's put together. Pete, you bring up China. You brought up China in the last uh, in the last segment, particularly with their uh, incursions into Africa. And I think of China today the way I um, the way I think sane. Americans thought perhaps of the Soviet Union, especially in the 70s and 80s. But I wonder if there's this other thing going on, too. For those who would warn about the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s, I I, I wonder if 
maybe the generation or two older than us, I wonder if they ran into the same thing we run into when we talk about China. And I wonder if you run into it. I know I do, which is when we talk about the depredations of China and we talk about um, their uh, oppression and we talk about uh, their, uh, I'll use the word evil, uh, we sometimes, whether we're talking about what they're doing in Xinjiang province or the way they treat uh, the, the media or the, the way they treat Christians or anyone with any religion, uh, the way they treat any kind of dissent, the way they treat their neighbors, I, you almost get the – I get the sense that people think I'm paranoid. They think like, what's the big deal? And I almost wonder if some of the Reagans and Buckleys and Whitaker Chamberses of their time, the Nixons of their time, got that when they were talking about the Soviet Union and whether it was the oppression of the church there or the oppression of dissidents or the gulags or Soviet Jewry. I wonder if that similar thing abided back then, too. Well, I think it certainly did. Um, and I have said it on your show before. I, I'm in agreement with uh, Neil Ferguson, the historian up at the Hoover Institution, who describes the period that we're in now with China as the second Cold War. And I, I don't say that to whip up anger or fear or anything other than to say we just have to look at the facts on the ground. Mm-hmm. And... It is true when you look back at the Reagans and the Buckleys, not only, I mean, I think there are a lot of differences between what may be this Cold War and the original. Good. Um, but I, one of the things that, just on your point, um, there certainly were those on the left when Reagan and Buckley and others were, uh, and Scoop Jackson. Yeah, yeah, even, no, there were some Democrats, know, too. Let's not forget right. there were your Gene Kirkpatrick's and Pat Moynihan's right. and Scoop Jackson's. Yes, sir. That's right. Who were right. John Kennedy's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And so um, most of the most of the attacks were coming from the left, who were frankly soft on communism. But there were also some on the right who were attacking these folks as being essentially warmongers. Hmm. Um, they were, of course, right on that. And I think... One of the things that we're seeing now is certainly uh, there are many on the left who are, frankly, not terribly disturbed by China's role in the world. Um, but there's there are also some on the right. And, I, you know, I think we just have to I, I think this is really one of the, the, the huge differences in this period versus the last one is that for years, Americans on both the right and left, but particularly on the right, were very much of the mindset that free markets would open China Mm -hmm. and democratize China. Right. The economy would drive the politics. That's right. The economics would drive the politics. Sorry, that's the better way to put it. And it was really Trump who changed that dynamic. Um, that, that That was the Republican stance through uh, Bush's one and two, and uh, for many on the right, um, thought that really trade with China was the route to uh, bring them out of a more authoritarian, insular stance. And that obviously has not happened. And so thinking through how we adjust our thinking, and obviously uh, Trump and his State Department and national security team were really pivotal in changing the mindset, particularly of Republicans, uh, to a new position on China to understand that there is the prospect, the very real prospect, that we are 
uh, have moved ourselves into uh, Cold War II. You know, it's such an interesting and big point you're making um, because it gets to boy, this opens up a lot here. Pete, I'm glad you did it. Let's no one better to do it with than you. I was reading a New York Times chief political correspondent for the New York Times wrote a wrote a piece after Nikki Haley's announcement for the presidency saying, of course, everyone knows this is the opening sentence. Of course, everyone knows today's Republican Party would have nothing in common with Reagan's Republican Party. And you know that game. But but and of course, the chief political correspondent says everyone. That's the word he used. Everyone knows this. Um, I don't. But but the point I was making. Everyone who he hangs out with. Right. Right. Everyone. Right. Everyone he knows who voted for uh, Joe Biden, I suppose, or Jimmy Carter. How did did Nixon get elected? Exactly. Right. The new Pauline Kale at The New York Times. Exactly. The difference, though, and and trade was one of the things he mentioned. He mentioned trade, foreign policy, and other things. But on that trade point, you know, in a weird way, yes, we should have been more concerned about China because of their politics. And hats off to those who were sounding that alarm from the get-go, the committee of a million that Buckley was part of in the Nixon days, you know, where they were not favorable towards Nixon's uh, appeasement and openings to China, sure. But really in the Reagan years— when it came to the economics of it all, the country we were worried about was Japan. And yeah. that, yeah. you may recall, I mean, Reagan slapped a lot of tariffs on Japan, too. Now, yeah. it wasn't their yeah. polit- politics, but on the issue of trade, um, oh, yeah. that it's it's it, it. Yes, you're right, though. There was almost a fetish of the growth that would come from China that I think actually turned out to be more selfish than politically, philosophically sound, if I'm being honest with you. I think, I think, I think the selfishness right was... Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to agree with you, and I think it's in some ways motivated and lobbied for by the large corporate interests that, that's that were what by and yeah. large going to benefit from that's that. What I so, mean, yeah. and, and, I, and I do think it's worth... I mean, context matters. Yep. It's important to, to think about the, the steps that Reagan took vis-a-vis... Japan and uh, certainly the Soviet Union uh, for that time, and and even with China. But it's another thing to say, you know, it it was worth exploring a a peaceful um, transition of the relationship with China through trade. That was worth exploring. But, you know, sometimes the evidence does prove itself. Yeah. That, that this direction just simply isn't working. And I think we've Certainly, with the Trump administration, that's where we saw the major break in in U.S. foreign policy that has, frankly, in many ways been continued by Biden. I've spoken with Ambassador O'Brien, former National Security Advisor, about this, and he says in many ways, at least as it relates to China, the Biden administration has actually continued uh, many of the Trump policies. Interesting. One might argue, too, I have to take a break here. We can pick up on this if you want. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Haley announcement, too. One of the things, too, one might say about what Donald Trump saw was the leadership of Xi Jinping going towards turning away from some of the softer leadership that existed at the head of the Chinese Communist Party a little bit before him. He really was a revolution back to Mao that I think the Obama administration was asleep at the switch on. And I think Trump may have seen that a little better than anyone else. Let me let me hit the break and I'll come back with more with Pete Peterson.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, if I might, um, Nikki Haley's name was raised, and I think a lot of people thought her candidacy would kind of be a little bit ho-hum and and also Mm. ran, and it may end up being that way, but I think it's already showing some interesting cultural um, cleavages in this country uh, or interesting uh, cultural notes. Whenever a conservative who happens to be some kind of racial or ethnic minority appears on the scene, it's amazing how much it scatters the brains of the team on the left that tells us we need to be a more racially and ethnically diverse society. I saw right. when she announced that uh, Sonny Hostin at The View uh, made fun of uh, and made sport of her and criticized her for using the name Nikki rather than uh, something much more uh, ethnically uh, uh, Indian, Asian Indian. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Last night, or I guess the day before, Don Lemon got in trouble for trying to do something about her gender. There's something yeah. weird about the attack and the, the, the teeth that come out from those who think diversity should be ethnically based or racially based when that ethnicity or uh, race happens to be in the form of a human being who's conservative. Huh? That's so true. And I, I think it does speak to one of the very interesting things that happens leading up to a presidential election is that you can think you have a read on how the public is going to react to certain candidates, but you can't know it until they actually do. Yeah. And sometimes that reaction can be a counter reaction to what people are saying, just like the ones that you talked about in in their initial uh, public, usually in the media, their reaction to candidate announcements. Mm -hmm. And and those reactions, whether it's Lemon or on The View or whatever, which, again, just show themselves to be either patently sexist or, or uh, certainly having issues with uh, Nikki being a, an Indian-American, um, you know, it's, it, it really does push, uh, A, a lot of attention that her <laughs> campaign uh, launch may not have otherwise have received. Yeah. But it also yeah. it also just pushes greater attention uh, by people on both sides of the aisle to learn and say, well, what is this person actually about? Yeah, Th- that's a good point. So in a way, it's it's the every time the left goes this way, they I, I mean, I don't know if there's going to ever really be accountability, but every time the left goes this way, they end up really promoting and helping. Kennedy, you you saw this with Larry Elder. You saw that L.A. Times headline. Oh, yeah. Larry Elder, the black face of white supremacy. But but right. I think in this instance, Seth, well, yeah. especially that Don Lemon, yeah. if you yeah. watch that whole yeah. clip, yeah. essentially what Don is trying to do is defend Biden's age. Right. Right. Because right. The, the way because that that whole quip. clip yeah. about. Right. Exactly. And in so doing, in trying to defend Biden's age, which every morning he wakes up in the White House, Biden sets a new record as the oldest serving president. Right. Um, every time that he is defended for his age, really what Biden, what Nikki Haley's campaign launch did was hold up a mirror yeah. to say that actually now you're going to have to defend uh, Biden's age because there's actually, whether it ends up being viable or not, there's somebody else on the playing field here 
that is making arguments, which again is just the amazing thing about American political campaigns. If they're run well, they raise questions that frankly pundits on their own are not able to raise. The candidates do it. it, You know, you put your finger on something else that's so interesting about that, because I think you're right. I think that's where his mind went, which shows you that that prejudice that exists, this is our short segment, so we'll have a longer one on the other side of this break. The prejudice that that the, that the liberals show here is they think the entire Republican Party is one thing, and that can be yeah. applied to the way they think it treats ethnic or racial or gender minorities, to be sure. But the other thing they all think is, that's, that, is, is that it's an entirely Trump party. And what I think Don Lemon missed there is I think her statement, uh, her statement about cognitive or mental competency tests for people who are over 75 – Equally, she meant as a broadside against Donald Trump, who was 76, <laughs> and Don yes. never saw no, that. Right. He never no, saw he let me Let me get you no. on the other side of this uh, quick break. Thanks uh, thanks for being with us. It's Pete Peterson. He's the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Check him out on uh, – check his school out, of course, online, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're looking for a career in public policy, you will do no better. And follow him on Twitter, at Pete4CA, the number four. And I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We're just kind of talking about, you know, what happens to the liberal left mind when a um, a powerful or puissant character from the conservative movement or the Republican Party who happens to also be a racial or ethnic minority or female raises their head, Nikki Haley being the representation of that right now, and how when people go so strongly at her the way they – to use their, their their race or their gender against them, it really turns out to be a grenade in their face. I mean, at least for a day or a two or a news cycle or two, as it, as it now certainly – most certainly is with um, with Don – with Don Lemon. And the larger point, Pete, I guess that I'm I'm concerned about here is whenever race really or, you know, some other immutable characteristic is made a thing of, becomes the thing, is made the fetish of, we end up destroying ourselves or the people who make the fetish of it end up destroying themselves. Any number of examples. This would be one. I'm watching this. I'm sure you are, too. The Supreme Court case with Harvard and the University of North Carolina happens to be also Asian plaintiffs, right? Asian-American plaintiffs. It always ends up blowing up when we do this thing, which may mean, at least to me, quit doing this thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm saying something so very obvious or something that's just not relevant. I don't know. Well, but it's very un-American, Right. I mean, our national motto, just to make this uh, simple but not simplistic, is e pluribus unum. And every time we go to the pluribus, as opposed to finding the unum out of situations and relationships, we are essentially running against the national motto. Now, I think the question of Biden's age is a legitimate question. Of course it is. Right. And so it's not ageism if there's been evidence given that one wonders um, whether uh, 
President Biden should run for office. I mean, there were questions raised for years about Senator Dianne Feinstein, who just this past week, one of our two senators here in California, has decided not to run again. And at 89, (laughs) to run for another six-year term and go through the rigors of that, I think everybody understands the reason she's not running is because she's 89 years old. So I don't think that that's, I think those are legitimate questions without going back to this pluribus uh, separating ourselves. But for everything else that we've seen just in this reaction, and the left better get used to it because we've got Tim Scott coming. We've got Christy Nome coming. uh, We've got a number of uh, candidates coming on the Republican side to make this a very diverse pool of candidates. This is the Republican Party. And can I add one more problem? I, are you familiar with uh, uh, Professor Charles Lipson, L-I-P-S-O-N? Not oh, yeah. Say, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. We were talking yesterday about his most recent piece, the Kamala Harris problem with the Democratic Party, precisely because of what you said. And uh, because they, they, I will use the word again, have made such a fetish of the race issue, you know, they now have a problem because she's Whatever you want to say about Joe Biden, she hardly seems at you know a much younger age any more competent than Joe Biden. Um, you yeah. know, uh, well, and there was an incredible piece in Politico, and they can't get rid of her. That. Yeah, right. Go ahead, sorry. Right, yeah. where a number, uh, and obviously there were a lot of unnamed sources in the political right. piece, but there were a couple uh, sitting congressmen, uh, Democrats. I noticed it. Who's, who said that we need to you know be very cautious yep. that if if Biden doesn't run, yeah. We've, we've got some challenges. Yeah, this isn't as, just Reagan you know, to Bush. Might. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> right, that's right. right. This isn't just Reagan to Bush uh, yeah. or Donald Trump to Mike Pence or whatever you want to say, because they they elevated uh, and made race such a big part of um, of what they think they have to do. And maybe they do have to. I don't know. But they're stuck here now and they're stuck with a that's real right. problem, a problem of their own making. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. And again, nobody's calling out these Democrats who are uh, apparently raising these issues about saying we, we really don't have a plan B here. No, when you do right. have a sitting vice president right. who right. could be that person. That's right. That's right. Um, speaking of that, that, um, that candidacy from a third prospect, back to the original where people thought, well, kind of maybe uh, why is she running ho-hum? I don't know. I don't care. Uh, another person I was speaking to made a really good point and reminded me of something important, I think. Get your thoughts on it. You never know with presidential races what's going to happen. And yeah. it's good to have someone there competent. She is competent, and she's not my candidate, but but you never know what's going to happen. We're old enough to remember when we thought it was going to be Rudy Giuliani, and he ended up not oh, yeah. winning a single primary, or Fred Thompson, or Scott oh, yeah. Walker. You know, Walker. sometimes yeah. these things just implode for reasons that are Tim unforeseen. Tim Pawlenty. Yes. Tim Pawlenty. Do you remember how big a deal Tim Pawlenty was? Gosh. I sure Right. Do. I do, too. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So it's sometimes good to have these people in the back in the backstop, um, because you never do know. These races do take on lives that are unforeseen of their own, right? They really do. I mean, it's really the, it, the, the genius of American politics is that while you think you can size these opponents up, it, it really is about how the broader public reacts to them, obviously. 
and how they react to each other, because that was a big part of the of the Trump campaign in 2016. It wasn't just who he was. Right. It was how the other Republicans reacted to him and yep. vice versa. Exactly. And right. the importance of being an outsider then and a demonstrated outsider was obviously the thing that that uh, took uh, Trump in not only to the nomination, but also to the White House. So still much too early to tell on what things are going to look like in 2024. I used to like very, very, very much the work of Peggy Noonan, and I want to like yep. her work very, very much again. <laughs> I really do. There's something I want to like very – I want yes. to like her again as much as I used to. Turns out I like her about once a month now. But her column uh, – I don't know if you've seen it. It will be in the print edition tomorrow of the Journal, Wall Street Journal. I haven't. Okay. It's a takedown of Nikki Haley's speech um, saying that she's not talking about big and important things. She sounds like she's talking from focus group. And I just got to say, you know, when Nikki ha- Nikki Haley is talking about big important things, the self-loathing uh, of this country uh, that has swept through the Democratic Party, she she is talking about very serious things. And I I I just I, I think the what I just I guess what I'm trying to say is it's it's important to maybe give a. Give give a view, give a listen to each of these folks, because they might be saying something that the journalists aren't hearing. And maybe Peggy's as guilty of it as anyone. Or maybe she didn't get the speech writing job. I don't know. (laughs) But 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 her speech was a perfect speech from what I heard and what I saw. Nikki Haley's. It was a perfect speech. I have a listener who called in and said she sounds perfect and I just don't want her to win a single primary. So that exists, too. <laughs> anyway. Well, again, she's going to raise arguments yep. that have to be dealt yep. with because she's a legitimate political candidate. Yep, so. she sure is. Well, Pete, you're wonderful, and thank you for spending uh, some of your afternoon from the East Coast with us. Uh, look forward to talking with you next time. Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Thank you, sir, for everything. Thanks, Seth. Great to be with you again. You betcha. Enjoy your travels. Be safe. You've probably been hearing me talk about Y-Refi for a while now, and if you still have some questions about what investing with Y-Refi can do for you, they urge you to give them a call, and they will happily put you in touch with any number of Phoenix area clients and customers who have invested with them and done very well. Their number is 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. How's your IRA doing? Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or the Fed? Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds? And you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred? That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA, and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, R E F Y. Com or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. You know, in thinking about people who um, supposedly broke glass ceilings to get the higher jobs that they have, but it's based on something other than their pure resume or their pure merit, it's important also, i pointing out certainly Kamala Harris and her problems and some of the others we have, 
it's certainly important to also look at the incompetence of Pete Buttigieg, who weirdly enough, you know, is talked about as a potential candidate for the presidency. Um, it never quite made sense to a lot of people, again, other than his, you know, other than his um, ancillary uh, characteristics, that a mayor of a town of 100,000 people and probably a lot less when the school year is not in session, um, South Bend, uh, would be qualified to serve as our Secretary of Transportation. And anyway, it's, it's, it's a problem that is now coming home for the Democrats to deal with. They have made an issue of ancillary characteristics being meritorious, in Pete Buttigieg's case, the fact that he was touted as the first gay cabinet member, Kamala Harris's case, gender and race, uh, and in the left's case, their criticism of Nikki Haley for not being true to her gender and her race. It's blowing up all over the place for them, for them who make the fetish of these issues. It's blowing up all over. And let me say once again, Joe Biden was not the first man to have an openly gay member of the cabinet. Donald Trump was. It's just that that man did not make a huge issue of it or make it, nor did the party, a claim to his qualification. He was the head of director. He was the director of our national intelligence. A pretty dang big job. A lot more coming up. My monologue next. Be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 